Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, we're ready to get started now. So good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Fantastic Fiction Reading Series here at the iconic KGB Bar, a literary institution. I am David Mercura Rivera, and I'm going to be co-hosting tonight with Ellen Datlow, subbing for Matt Kressel. And thanks to Ellen and to Matt for uh, letting me fill in tonight. This reading series is held on the third Wednesday of every month, and it dates back, dates back to the late 1990s. It was established by Terry Bisson and Alice K. Turner, and it's been running strong ever since uh, under the leadership now of, of Matt and Ellen. Uh, we feature luminaries and up-and-comers in speculative fiction, and we have two terrific readers tonight, uh, Seth Dickinson and Laura Ann Gilman. You know, admission is always free. The bar allows us to hold the readings here without charge. We only request that you support the bar and the series by ordering a drink, either alcoholic or non-alcoholic, and uh, tip our hard-working uh, bartenders, please. Uh, this is good for us. <laughs> Helps us all in the end. And also, uh, in the back, Word Bookstore is here, and they're selling uh, books by the authors. So... <laughs> So we have a couple of books by Lauren back there and, and one of Seth's. So please uh, go back, uh, buy your books, bring them up to the authors, and they'll be happy to sign them for you during your intermission. <laughs> <laughs> so please buy them. Um, I'm going to let Ellen tell us about our upcoming readers when she, uh, during the intermission. But uh, we want to get started and introduce our first readers tonight, Seth Dickinson. Uh, Seth Dickinson's short stories have been published in Clark's World, Strange Horizons, Lightspeed, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and elsewhere. He's also contributed uh, writing to video games, including Destiny, The Taken King. And his first novel, the epic fantasy, The Traitor Baruch Cormorant, was published in 2015, and he's now working on a sequel. So here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Seth Dickinson. Hey guys. I'm sorry to anybody who came out hoping to hear from that sequel, because I just decided 10 minutes ago not to read from it. But it's okay, I rehearsed many things. Uh, so this is an excerpt from an unpublished work. Do you want the light up? Sorry. I'm comfortable this way. It's going to be good. <laughs> Unless you want me, like, lit from below. Sorry. All right, here we go. Are you prepared to meet an alien in Central Park? Coils up in the sunlight, 
fanged and beautiful, eating the turtles who live on the rocks. It tears them in half and it plucks the meat from their shells, and all the while it hisses a quiet song. Anna stares at it in delight. What do you do? Anna knows what to do. She has daydreamed a plan while she was on jury duty, waiting to explain that she is unsuitable for juries because she makes decisions far too quickly and far too finally. What will I do when I see an alien? First, she will take a picture. Then she will sidle up to one of Central Park's other inhabitants, perhaps a spandex jogger or a finance ball sack or a woman with an infinitely hostile purse dog. She will say, hey, check out that cool costume. This will keep everyone busy taking pictures. While they're occupied, Anna will walk right up to the entity and introduce herself. Bam! Anna Rakani seizes the history books as ambassador for Earth. What could she say after that? She has not planned this far. Probably she would beg them to invade, as it is the only way she can imagine forgiveness for her Argentina-sized debt. Today is the 24th of June, a warm day, a day so nice that Anna wants to argue with it because it feels like nature is really pressuring her to be happy. Anna has just been fired for disrupting the company culture. This happens a lot. Because of her background as a Kurdish war orphan, Corporate hiring committees who want to satisfy their commitment to diversity in one affordable package see Anna as a fucking gem, specifically a conflict diamond. They hire her, onboard her, photograph her, put her on the pamphlets and the website in their customer-facing ad campaign, and only then do they realize that Simonaz Rakhani comes with a few items of defect. One, she has an honesty problem in that she is too honest like a German, except that Germans are blunt, whereas Anna cannot get out of an argument without smoking a blunt. <laughs> Two, she does a lot of disruption, but not in the cool post-Uber sense. Rather, repeatedly and egregiously, she will say, this is stupid, you are stupid, and I refuse to do it until you convince me otherwise. <laughs> Number three, she has probably actually shot people. Sometimes this comes out during the company paintball trip. What happens if Anna reads your no, Anna, what the fuck email and pulls a Glock in the bathroom? Specifically, this came up in an HR complaint. I feel like Anna might Glock me in the bathroom. Anna's mood today. Fuck you, Glock hater. Fuck you, New York City. And fuck you, Earth. This brings Anna to Central Park, where she can jog angry circuits without stoplights or gym memberships. The problem is that she's starting to believe she doesn't actually want a job. She doesn't care about anything that seems to matter to anyone else. For a few minutes as a child, Anna held the power of life and death in her sweaty little hands, and she did not refuse to wield it. She wants that back. That's her filthy secret. That's why she loves stories so much. Adolescent fantasy, fuck, she earned that life. The world made her a promise. If you carry heavy grief... If you're real fucking tragic, if you grimace and refuse to speak of your pain, then one day, one day, you will be offered a chance to redeem yourself. Suffering is debt, and the universe owes you. Right? Wrong, of course, of course. A real adult would know that. Congratulations on your mythically awful childhood, Anna. But it is nothing to anyone here except a reason to dump you and tell all your friends that you need therapy. Keep your temper down, your credit score up, Drink with the crew on Saturday.
by office politics, but say you don't care. A necessity which Anna hates, because she can't help it. She just treats every gossipy, oh, Rich said you weren't a great fit for the position, rumor, as an actual fight-or-flight situation. When she hears something like that, her brain firmly believes that Rich is coming at her with an assault rifle, that Anna is again seven years old, all she has is a rock, her entire race is being gassed and rounded up for execution, like a second fucking all-anfall, all because the fucking Americans told the Iraqi Kurds to rebel and then didn't show up for the rebellion. The Americans actually told the Kurds to rebel against Saddam Hussein, and then their general gave Saddam permission to fly attack helicopters. What kind of limp-dicked, tinder-quality mixed messaging is that? Anyway, they tell Anna these things. You make people uneasy in the office, Anna. Seek therapy, Anna. You're fired, Anna. You're fired. You're fired. So Anna runs and runs in circles around the park. She shoulder checks, she shoulder checks a Korean guy who's shooting a model in a bikini and antlers, hops off the path to stumble down a stone slope, growls back stupid, angry tears because she has a date with Roman tonight and she is not going to have the patience she needs for him. And then she sees it. There it is, on the rocks, in the pond, in the sun. The alien. She's sunning herself on the rocks, belly up, stirring the pond water with her hands. So vivid, so fuck you, I am real undeniable that she short-circuits all forms of critical thought, and really, if you consider it, Anna is the perfect woman for this situation. She will accept anything and everything at face value, and immediately start finding a way to survive it. So, behold the visitor. Her long, muscular tail drifts down into the water, lashing idly, like a cat who cannot get at a bird. The whole beast is sheathed in arrowhead scales, shiny black and fine as fingernail. It's pretty much a naga, which is a snake centaur for those who don't traffic in imaginary beasts. Serpent from the waist down, scaly person from the waist up, slim and kind of ripped, and Anna goes for she just because of the gloves. Look at the way her arms shade, satin black at the shoulders, silver white at the fingertips. Yeah, they're like gloves. Instead of a head, the alien grows eight vipers. Snakes as long as her arms and as graceful as a bouquet of swan necks. One of the alien's graceful snake heads whips out and bites a turtle right on its beaky face. The poor critter falls over paralyzed, and the alien scoops it up in her hands, grunts, and rips its bottom shell off. Anna stares in mild consternation. The poor turtle! With a delighted hiss, the alien jabs three heads into the turtle gore and eats it like a bowl of meat. She has enormous hinged fangs. Green-white in each milky mouth, except where silver metal gleams, cybernetic and cold. Anna whips out her phone, and according to plan, takes a picture. One of the alien's heads snaps right around to her, as if she just farted loudly at a party. Wait a minute, the alien says, in a voice rather like Kate Blanchett speaking Kurdish. It is absolutely Kurdish, regal and precise. You can see me? Fuck yeah, I can, Anna boasts. You were busted. Do you come in peace? How long have you been here? Where are you from, and are there more of you? Aren't you afraid? One of the alien snakeheads jabs at Anna, accusatory. Don't you feel a malignant sense of absolute and infectious horror? (laughs) No, Anna says, switching over to video. Say hi to the internet. (laughs) 
This is unexpected, the alien sighs. Two of her heads fixed on Anna, two of them circling around as wary sentries, the other four lashing and ripping and eating the hell out of the turtle in a spew of gore. I need to consider what this means. Enjoy convincing anyone I'm real. And she ignores Anna for the next six minutes, eating two more turtles, before she slithers into the water of the pond and disappears. Wait, Anna shouts. Come back. You are literally the most important thing to ever happen. Her phone, of course, records not a serpent-headed alien, but a faintly intimidating mid-forties black woman in a neat gray pantsuit, kneeling on the rocks, eating low-fat yogurt from a little cup. (laughs) The turtles do not make an appearance, as if she ate their pictures, too. But Anna has, God knows her exasperated teachers told her this enough, zero capacity for self-doubt. It was an alien, it was real, and it will come back. I'm going to skip ahead. Uh, In the intervening chapter, uh, Anna comes home from a breakup to find the alien shot and bleeding out on her kitchen floor. Um, And they make a deal where she helps the alien out by looking for its enemies, uh, and the alien pays her rent. Um, So at this point, it's clear that the alien, whose name is Srin, is on the run from a galactic government called the Exordia, um, and that they have now taken out her ship. So... Um, Srin can't go herself. She sends Anna to try to recover an important artifact from the ship, which is apparently underneath Central Park. Uh, if you hear anything confusing, just imagine. <laughs> Anna goes sunbathing in the sheep meadow on a rainy day in a one-piece swimsuit. She looks like a big idiot. When she wades into the turtle pond and breaststrokes right out to the center, a cop yells after her, Lady... You can't go in there. Fuck the police. Anna is going to go Spock with the turtles. Three meters, Srin says, through the bead in her throat. Straight ahead. Two meters. One meter. Now dive. Anna gulps a big, wet lungful of air and kicks for the bottom. There are no turtles in sight. Maybe Srin has driven them extinct. There's no sign of an alien spacecraft either, but this is according to plan. Srin's ship is hidden in a pocket of what she calls plausibly emancipated space-time. Okay, Srin says, when you pop through, I will disarm the most fatal traps. I'm opening the claudication now. Anna bubbles in protest. What do you mean, fatal traps? And then her skull rings with a pure crystalline sound. The world collapses. There is nothing in any direction, neither light nor darkness. Anna is now a point with only one quality. Guilt. Crushing total guilt. Murdo, she thinks. Brother. Oh, my God. I am so sorry. I am so sorry for what I did to you. After a meaningless interval, the dimensions of space and time return. Suddenly, Anna's free-falling inside a bubble of pond water, wham, right on her elbows onto grungy green-bronze metal. The flash of light passes. She lies there panting and dripping in the dark. Good, Srin says. You should be in the aft boarding kill zone. Do you see the bomb I left on the ceiling? If it hasn't blown up, no one else has come into the ship. Anna rolls onto her back. It's still black. I can't see anything, she says. Oh, right. The light's still in infrared. Just a moment. I'm putting the ship in slave mode. Is that, like, remote control? No, it's a simplified interface. So slaves can fly the ship if the crew is incapacitated. (laughs) What the fuck, man, Anna says. You guys are the worst. That is objectively correct, Srin says. (laughs) 
can your fat round eyes see now? The walls brighten with lovely red gold dawn. Anna's lying in a little compartment, pearly smooth, kind of a Joni Ive minimalist look if Apple worked in shades of oxidized bronze in the stink of blood. The hull prickles against her bare skin, and Anna is uncomfortably and totally certain that it is tasting her with microscopic needles. She rolls up to her knees. The walls flash red script at her, vivid angular characters halfway between Nazca and Nazi. The letters look sleek and confident and kind of like teeth. Slave mode, Srin said. The ship must want Anna to remember who really owns it. Anna searches for the bomb Srin mentioned. Right above her head, there's a plate of dimpled black metal, flexed to the ceiling by a sticky-looking black membrane. Anna pokes it because she is a fuck-up. The black stuff feels form and warm like a curled bicep. Weird. I found the bomb, she says. I poked it. Can I move? Yes. Face the icon like an open circle. That's direct access to the payload bay. Okay. Now walk to the hatch. I'm pretty sure I convinced the Claymore not to kill you. If you are, if the two of us are in Serendur, then it's very unlikely that you'll die right now. It wouldn't be narratively complete. Anna steps toward the hatch. So all this narrative shit you keep name-dropping. You said the souls of intelligent beings live in the Eretea, which is like a second set of physics, right? And if souls are made out of stories, and the Eretea is, like, really badly designed, then do stories... Yes, stories are maps of cause and effect. Really effective stories recur over and over in billions of souls. They overflow, gain the ability to exist on their own in the Eretea, replicate, and eventually inject themselves back into the universe's physics model. So stories become real. Sort of. These are only abstract technical archetypes, but they do have power. Srin thinks for a moment. For example, the Bellinari have a mythotype in which a hive queen must share a secret with all her children to solve a problem. And it turns out that quantum decryption actually works better near a group of Bellinari because the Eretea skews probability towards disclosing the secret. Wild, Anna breathes. Srin goes on. My people were the first to apply Eretaic technology to narrative engineering at a species-wide scale. What do you mean, Anna asks? Like, happy endings for all dogs? <laughs> we restricted the narratives that Exordia's subjects could participate in. We confined them to our myth of superiority. It's a process we call pinioning. I keep telling you, you people are the worst. Anna touches the wall with the open circle glyph and it slashes away like a reverse guillotine. Eerie quiet. Past that wall panel, there's an old-school hatch with a big mechanical wheel, which Anna grabs and turns with her whole weight. Srin, she grunts. What exactly am I looking for? The Ubiet of Ko. It's an Eretaic sensor of ancient provenance. If I use it to analyze our Serendur, it can tell me where our story came from and where we might be going. Okay, cool, but uh, what does this Ubiet of Cows actually look like? <laughs> At that moment, the hatch clanks open, and a blast of freezer air knocks Anna on her ass. Breath feels suddenly like peeling her tongue off frozen steel. The pond water on the deck beneath her has already curled, curdled to slush. Jesus, Shrin, she gasps. What? It's cold in there. Thermoregulate. Use your adrenaline. Keep moving. You should be fine. I can't. It's not like taking a piss, Shrin. I don't just open the sphincter and adrenalize myself. <laughs> oh, Shrin says, disapprovingly. Fuck. In that case, move very quickly. You won't survive long in the payload bay. <laughs> Why is it so cold? Anna chatters. There's no heat in the ship's universe. 
Nothing exists outside the hull. Anna rips herself into motion. A layer of skin peels off the soles of her feet. She hops through the hatch on her toes. Every step leaves a stain of pink ice and a short, undignified scream. Inside the payload bay, it's all dim blue-black emptiness like an airplane hangar. Obelisks of green metal drifting where gravity is fucked right off. Tangles of umbilical cable, a slow drip of something chemical and astringent from high above where arc light glares. Anna screams into the killing frost. Where the fuck do I go? The ubiet's stored on a drop rack. Go straight ahead ten meters, grip the lever on the console and pull. The ship will release the rack. Grab the ubiet and get out. Don't worry about what it looks like. You're fated to choose the correct one. Why? It's the principle of parsimony. The ubiet can influence free will to create cleaner narrative trajectories. Anna is printing the frigid deck with thin onion skin copies of her feet. She does not feel like she's on any sort of clean trajectory. So then why the fuck did it let you leave it here? It didn't know that it gets shot. The Exordia has weapons that serve as, I'm not sure how this translates, protagonist killers. <laughs> Anna's bloody foot sticks to the deck. She falls on her forearms. Fuck, she snarls, which comes out in a puff of vapor that sparkles into frost and snows on the deck. She peels herself back to her feet, and one gauzy, bloody, pink-brown footstep at a time, she walks to the lever. Anna, a voice says, not Srin, a man's voice. You can't trust her. What the fuck, Anna says, wearily. If you give Srin the Ubiet, Earth dies. I can't put it more simply than that. God willing, this is some kind of brain-freeze hallucination, as one alien inside her head is plenty. But the voice goes on. Anna, my name is Irovage. You've been attacked and coercively narrated by a renegade officer with dreams of godhood. You are entrapped in an artificial story created by her cultratic operancy. I can hear her lying to you. I can smell her poison in your fate. Anna's hair is now frozen to her scalp, but she's at the console. The lever's just a green bronze stick shift the length of her forearm. Anna grabs it, and with a great redemptive burst of adrenaline, she hauls that motherfucker across and down. God bless alien engineers, it does not stick, to itself or to her hands. Anna, the new voice says, please do not do this. There is a monster on that ship, and it will come for you if you touch the Ubiet. Fuck off, Srin snaps, and the other voice goes away in a burst of static, like two trains fucking. Ignore him, Anna. Get the Ubiet. The ready rack is a shelf of miscellaneous shit, hanging 15 feet in the air. When Anna pulls the lever, it topples straight down onto the deck, bounces to a stop, and hangs there, full of silver clamshell cases and green bronze artifacts and swords and guns and a thing like a black hole, slippery warped refraction, trapped in a ball of glass. That has to be the Ubiet. Anna grabs it, and the fucking thing talks to her right in her head. Hello, I am an Ubiet, <laughs> providing narrative surveillance and eritaic analysis to operants of virtue, you are a Type 4 natively ensouled low-agency protagonist in a state of high-resonance serendor with a short-term forecast of Shut up, Anna growls, before the damn thing can predict her fate. She tries to turn back the way she came, and her feet stick. She falls for a third time. Her bathing suit is now a sheet of crackling ice, and something behind her is tickling at her, tapping her shoulder, whispering like, Hey, hey, hey. Shit, Srin says. And at first, Anna thinks Srin's concern is for her fall, but then she remembers who's talking. He's put an atmanac in the ship. It smells your world line entangled with the Ubiet. Shit, shit, shit. Anna, against all mythological advice, looks back. 
Something is moving in the lightning-lit depths of the payload bay where currents snap between coils the size of whales. A presence angular and dark that recedes away forever, all the way to the vanishing point, like a bad polygon drawn by an overheating graphics card, or a sunset shadow on an infinite plane. And at the tip of that shadow, something moves around itself, toothed and jagged, a thousand thousand chainsaw tapeworms chasing each other through a bulging intestine. It's getting closer. What's an atmanac? She groans. She needs to peel herself off the deck, but to do that, she'll have to rip, rip all the skin off her forearms, and that is going to hurt like fuck. It's a cultratic construct, Srin sends, a soul retriever with an artificial hell manifold inside. Don't choose to do anything. Just act on instinct. It hunts by searching for free will. Fuck. Fuck, fuck, fuck. But good news, there are no choices available. Anna is now actually frozen down, glued to the metal by her own blood and pond water. Srin, she begins to shout as the Atmanac gets closer. Srin, I need help. I see that. I'm going to blow you out of the payload bay. What? I'm going to reverse the gravity and drop you outside. You'll fall through the claudication back into your universe, but you may experience some ethical shear. I need you to pin yourself to your soul. Think of the story that best describes you. Think of that and only that. The story that best describes her. Oh, she knows what that is. She closes her eyes. And again, the man in the red beret puts his pistol into Anna's child hands. He says, I've always believed that unreasoning defiance is the mark of an animal. A human being knows how to do what must be done. Are you an animal, daughter of Sir Hingrakani? The entire payload bay groans and trembles, and way, way above the ceiling splits open. Anna stares into the edge of the world. Weird, it is a mirrored image of the payload bay. The light must be bouncing back, and in that reflection she can see the Atmanac zagging towards her, a many-headed centipede ricocheting off dumb matter, homing in on her will. She thinks of Brother Murdo staring up at her. She thinks of what she told him. I'm sorry, I have to save them all. I have access to environmental systems, Srin says. Anna realizes then that her image of her own soul is not very different from her imagination of hell. I have gravity control, Srin reports. Stand by for acceleration. And Anna's ripped from the frozen deck, bleeding like a freezer-burnt steak, clinging to the ubiet as she falls up into the edge of the universe. Fuck, she screams, and her trigger finger tickles with the ghost of motion, and her gun hand trembles with the memory of recoil, and the ubiet looks back at her like a glaring eye. Sauron is the bright lord of all guilt trips, full of the spew of blood and brain across fallow soil, full of her brother Murdo's dead and begging eyes. Why, Anna, why? That's it. Thank you. That's great. Is that a yeah. It's a novel. Isn't that the novel? It's. Uh, I haven't submitted it anywhere. So. <laughs> well, it's not. Oh, wait a minute. So it's a story. It's part of a story. It's part of a novel that oh. I haven't submitted anyway. Okay, okay, got it, okay. Anyway, thank you. Um, we're going to take a ten-minute break. In the meantime, have a drink, relax, buy some books, and have the author sign them, and we'll be back in ten minutes. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, 
Thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.